Hello, fellow ag nerds. Happy holidays, everybody. Happy 2024. I'm recording this in the very last week of December 2023. And uh, for a lot of people, I know for myself, this is a time of reflection, a chance to sort of step back from the normal week to week, day to day grind and try to gain some clarity before diving into the year ahead. So for the past four years, I've used this week for episodes of the podcast that pull insights from multiple pre Previous episodes. We step out of the interview format, we take a look across multiple episodes, and we think about themes that emerge that might uh, give us some sort of insight into where agriculture is headed in some insight into the future of agriculture. This happened uh, back in ep episode 186 with five trends for the future of agriculture, continued on with five barriers limiting ag tech. And then last year I did uh, leading from the farm insights from farmer innovators. I'm doing that again today for the fifth year in a row. Although instead of pulling clips from my own episodes, as I've always done in the past this year, I reached out to other ag podcasters that I respect and that cover some of the same areas of agriculture that I do. And I asked if they'd pick a few of their own episodes to share with me that they think are most indicative of where the future of agriculture is headed. Uh, so they did that. I really enjoyed listening to these episodes and choosing one from each of six podcasts that I think is noteworthy, that I think could really be instructive for us to examine uh, to look at where the future of agriculture is headed. So today you're going to hear insights from six different ag podcasts, and those are the business of agriculture. Culture, Ag Tech So What, The Modern Acre, Farm for Profit, Fresh Takes on Tech, and Farm Traveler. So thank you very much to each of those podcasters uh, that are behind those shows for their tireless efforts to make a great content, for being willing to participate in this kind of experimental format I'm trying here today. Uh, before we dive into things, I do want to take a moment to recognize our quarterly presenting sponsor, which this quarter is FarmWave, which tells you what, in a lot of cases, you don't want to know. Every three seconds, FarmWave's Harvest Vision system is counting your harvest losses off the header and from the combine and reporting them to you in the cab in real time. Make changes on the fly and watch your loss counts drop without having to stop or do manual harvest loss counts again. Models are currently available in corn and soybeans with several other crops in development for release soon. But don't take my word for it. Listen to an actual FarmWave customer. I had firsthand experience with it. It proved itself right out the gate the first minute we started running it. That is hard to argue with. You know, I mean, when you see something instantly showing you a return, there's something to it. And then it's done it over the, you know, we've done it multiple times. Would I like to get through a season without it showing me anything? Yeah, that'd be great. It means I'm doing it right. But it's also nice having that safety net that if something, you know, you get into the end of the season, you're maybe not checking everything the way you should, or you just assume everything's adjusted correctly or it's running right. Well, this is going to tell you otherwise if you do have something that's not right. Join the ranks of farmers deploying Harvest Vision in their fields to ensure no bushel gets left behind. Put AI to work on your farm. Just visit farmwave.io to chat with one of their experts or locate a dealer near you. Thank you so much to FarmWave for supporting farm innovation and the Future of Agriculture podcast. All right, now back to today's episode with insights on the future of agriculture from six different ag podcasts. Now, I, I do want to take just a moment here to set up a little bit of a disclaimer. I want to clarify, I, 
it's certainly not my intent to leave anyone out of this list of podcasts or to snub anyone. There are a lot of different ag podcasts, many, many more than when I started doing this back in 2016. I just had only so much space for today's episode. And so I wanted to focus on those that, uh, number one, I had some sort of personal connection to the host. And number two, tend to cover the type of topics that uh, we talk about here on the show. So there would be some clear overlap. So do want to thank those that contributed no offense to any others that are out there. There's some great ag podcasts not included. Uh, but with that said, these are six great shows to add to your queue if you're not listening to them already. Now, it's remarkable that while each of the clips you're about to hear relate to themes we discuss regularly on the show, they are vastly different from each other and from any of the episodes you've heard from me this year, which I think speaks to the value and the insight that you're going to get from today's episodes even more than I expected when I had the idea. Uh, we cover relevant topics like shifting global economy and geopolitical landscapes, uh, farm business mindset, artificial intelligence, marketing strategy, climate smart agriculture, direct-to-consumer meat, and a whole lot more. First, we're going to start with a podcast episode that was really very easy for me to choose because it's something I've been thinking a lot about this year, and that is the changing global demographics. I read the book this year, The End of the World is Just the Beginning by Peter Zine, and it lays out a really compelling case for D globalization. Peter studies the intersection of geopolitics and demographics, and he's been among the leaders that are sounding alarm bells that a shrinking and aging population in many, many countries, along with a changing geopolitical landscape, will inevitably lead to a period of deglobalization, which is the exact opposite of what every single one of us has experienced in our entire lifetimes of constantly growing populations. Obviously, that has major, major ramifications for how our whole food system our commoditized agricultural system is set up. A couple of other guys sounding alarm bells, especially for what this means for agriculture, are Damian Mason and Todd Thurman. Damian, of course, is the host of the Business of Agriculture podcast, and they talked about this on episode 285 of the Business of Agriculture this past March in an episode titled The Future of Ag is Deglobalized. Here's Damian and Todd. I'm telling you, if you think the future of American agriculture is just like it used to be, make more stuff, find a barge to put it on and find some country that will take it. It's not going to be that way. Todd Thurman, before we hit record, I said, all right, we're going to be throwing this out there. The future of ag is deglobalized. Am I right? Are we right? And why are we? Yes, I, I think you're right. Um, I think it is deglobalized. I think it's difficult to see these types of transitions when you're right in the middle of them. And that is absent uh, strange confounders. And we certainly have not had any shortage of those confounders um, in terms of uh, the financial crisis back in 2008. And then obviously recently the pandemic. So it's, it's very difficult to see these types of trends as they're occurring, uh, as you kind of reach that tipping point. I think that's where we're at. And I think that's why you have uh, quite a bit of, disagreement on whether or not this is going to happen. But to me, it is clear that all of the trends are moving in a more deglobalized uh, direction. 
And if this is all true, and Damien and Todd make a really compelling case, as does Peter Zion in his books, this represents a monumental shift for agriculture. No more, quote unquote, feeding this growing population with as many commodities as we possibly can produce to ship them around the world. Just like Damien said there, the marketplace becomes much different. It becomes smaller, becomes more concentrated, becomes more localized or nationalized, and it becomes a lot more nuanced and dynamic would be my assertion. Uh, it's a little hard, though, for me to wrap my head around. I'm, I'm sure if you're hearing this for the first time, you're in the same boat I am, which is like, OK, what exactly does that even look like? Now, that episode by Damien and Todd is very instructive, but also it builds on a previous episode of theirs, which is uh, Business of Agriculture 263, what an aging, shrinking population means for ag and everyone else. And I think this might shed some additional light. So not only do we have a declining fertility rate, so we're having fewer babies, um, we are living long, right? Virtually everywhere in the world is expanding their life expectancies, especially in the developing world. And that's all great news for everybody, obviously. Um, so as we have fewer babies, uh, some of that population uh, decline is mitigated by the fact that people are living longer. But that has significant ramifications for agriculture and for the broader economy and society and political systems. Um, and that's kind of what we're going to focus on here today is more of the aging aspect of it. Um, so we're looking at, at, at China. Um, reasonable, very reasonable estimates have uh, by 2030. So we're talking about less than eight years from now. Uh, by 2030, the working uh, the retired population in China will be bigger than the working population. <laughs> so you literally have more retired people that are drawing from uh, the resources than you have people that are contributing to the resources. And that's not 2050 or 2100. That's in, in, in a few seven or eight years in the currently biggest uh, country in the world population. Um, and so, you know, we're talking about uh, uh, major changes that are going to happen over the next 20 or 30 years. It, Things that haven't, and, and, and I know we've way overused the term unprecedented, but it certainly applies in this case because I don't think there is an example uh, of a corollary in human history. Everything, everything we've ever done, uh, all of our economic systems, all of our uh, political systems, all of our societal systems are really kind of underlying, you know, whether you realize it or not, are based on this assumption that there's going to be more and more people every year. Um, certainly, you know, pork is a great example. We're going to get, we can continue. Uh, we, we outstripped our, our ability to consume it here in the U.S., and so we've been able to export that, and the industry's done a great job. Um, but eventually, we're going to have to figure out how to manage a decline. Now, I realize that some of the stuff can sound really far-fetched because it's so contrary to the paradigm we've always lived in. But uh, I would encourage you to take a look at the data because it is compelling. It is alarming. Certainly, uh, the book that I have thought the most about that I've read this year is that book by Peter Zion. But listen to these episodes of The Business of Agriculture. Read some of Zion's books and consider what a shift like this might mean, or even just a couple degrees in this direction might mean for the future of agriculture. Uh, one of the topics that I'm sometimes asked to speak about are external factors shaping the future of agriculture, and this one is a huge one. 
And speaking of that, uh, both Damien and Todd Thurman are both professional speakers for hire. So uh, make sure you reach out to those guys for your next event and get them in there to talk about the business of agriculture and the future of agriculture. But next, we're going to switch from external factors shaping the future of agriculture to more internal factors. And I'm using that term to mean changes at the farm level that could impact things from the farm outward. And I'm talking about two trends specifically that you've heard about here on this podcast, even just this year, artificial intelligence on the farm and the uh, what we'll call modernization of farm business strategy. Sarah Nolette captured these themes perfectly in an episode this past September titled Mark Arnish and how farmers are using chat GPT. We'll get to the chat GPT part of that in just a minute. But the first thing that stood out to me about Mark, who's a diversified farmer in Colorado, is how he's thinking about his business differently. Just like we've heard from people like Evan Shout and Kyle Maiman on this show, Mark admits to Sarah Nolette on AgTech So What that uh, he looks at his business a little bit different from a lot of his peers and especially from previous generations. Actually, I farm a little bit different than my dad and my grandfather and uncles. They had the approach of, hey, look, we made it through the 1980 farm crisis. We kept our head down. We worked really hard and everything turned out. And that was very successful for them. But when I went off to college, I learned that diversification was key. Knowing your balance sheet better than your crop was important. And the hallmark of my operation has always been crunching the numbers, understanding what works, and being able to pivot. We've pivoted three or four different times within my farming career. In fact, we actually started out growing a lot of sugar beets. We pivoted to growing dry onions. We had a packing shed here in eastern Colorado where we packed, processed, and shipped our onions to over 30 different states and four foreign countries. But when there were things outside of our control, things that I couldn't change, I couldn't get out of the way, we pivoted. And we've pivoted into the seed business, the craft grain space, and that value-added proposition. We collect a lot of information on our farm. Uh, sometimes too much information. But we've learned with time to develop metrics, those things that we can measure. Because when you measure something, you can often change something. And that's really set us on a path to success. And this mindset opens up possibilities for Mark and his farm that others either might not see or might not be in a position to capitalize on. And this year, one of those possibilities was using the artificial intelligence platform ChatGPT on his farm. I've used it to ask questions about business strategy, how to approach growing my farming operation, how I might approach a neighbor and a strategic business partner about taking over his operation, what that might look like, what things I should consider what a contract would look like. If my neighbor decided to retire from farming, what would a farm lease look like? And it's just stunning some of the information that it's put out and how accurate it is and how how thoughtful it is. I've learned that I have to be very clear in what I'm asking it. And as far as even asking it and then give it an idea of what I'm trying to accomplish. I've also heard from other friends and neighbors that they've used this technology to solve some of their legal challenges. I read on Twitter of a guy that I know that farms out here in Eastern Colorado that was having a hard time collecting on an invoice that he had sent to a customer. And he was getting frustrated and was about ready to send this customer to collections when he thought, you know what, I'm going to have chat GPT 
write a strongly worded letter to this customer asking for payment. Not only did it work, but he received payment within 10 days. And of course, we've explored artificial intelligence in agriculture on several episodes of the Future of Agriculture this year, from Mineral to CropX to FarmWave and many, many others that we won't list here. But we've even done uh, more of a chat GPT-like episode with FBN's AI-powered advisor, Norm, who you might recall wrote the intro for the episode, and I had another AI tool, Descript, actually generate the audio in my voice. But uh, all that to say, artificial intelligence is here. It's here to stay. It's likely that we haven't even scratched the surface of its potential in agriculture and ag tech. And Mark Arnish tells Sarah Nolette that he is blown away by what ChatGPT can do, but also he has some deep concerns about the technology. One of the really fascinating things was in my conversation, my dialogue with ChatGPT, it was that it was learning from my conversation. It would remember bits and pieces of things I had told it about this scenario once before, and it was impregnating that into its answers. And that was surprising and a touch scary all at the same time. Yeah, tell me more about that. I think it's one of the things that is so different about these conversational interfaces is they can learn from you and they do evolve and you actually get a lot of benefits, not just from search and find the best answer, which is what we're used to, but iterate and converse. Tell me about that experience. It would build on previous conversations. In a search engine, you have to be very direct and you have to type in certain things and it's not going to remember what you searched before or if it didn't refine your search well enough and you try to build upon it and you try to narrow it down. It would take some of the things that we were chatting back and forth early in the conversation, maybe even previous days, and it would remember that and it would build upon it. And it would say things like, remember, one of the priorities you have in this is making sure that not only are you growing your family operation, but those around you are growing as well. Keep that in mind. And I'm thinking, gosh, this is a little bit like talking to my wife. (laughs) It's reminded me of these things that we talked about days ago, and it's making it in a focus that I can see clearly. That was a new experience for me, for sure. Do you have concerns when you think about uses of ChatGPT and ag? I have deep concerns about how an AI platform like ChatGPT might be used in the future. I've asked it some very leading questions about Advocacy in agriculture, we tend to defend agriculture vehemently here in the United States. It's an industry certainly worth defending, but I found that it provided some answers that, frankly, I wasn't comfortable with. It talked about how farmers and ranchers tend to abuse the land and abuse their livestock, and it talked about certain situations that may or may not have existed. In fact, it brought up one scenario that happened here in Colorado that I can't find in any kind of Google search anywhere. It's almost as though it created it. And so I suspect that there are algorithms, there's programming, there's learning technology that is drawing from things that aren't necessarily fact-based. I asked it to write a biography about who I am, just to see how it sources information about me. I would say about 90% of the biography it wrote on me was dead on. But there was one issue that was just crazy that it brought out of left field that I've never even heard of. And I was stunned that it would create a falsity that was so well created and constructed that others wouldn't know the difference. Mm. I later asked it to write a biography about my wife. 
and it wrote this glowing biography about how she's one of the leading real estate agents in all of Colorado. And she's not a real estate agent, never has been. And so I know that there's a lot of errors in an AI platform like this. I know it can be very much influenced. And I think if we're not careful as agriculturalists, it may be used to our detriment. And as time goes on, I'm sure we'll see more and more of the use cases with this technology and probably some of the same downsides that Mark is talking about. Uh, But hopefully those downside risks can be managed so we can uh, really unlock new possibilities with not only these chat based products, but with other new and exciting AI driven technologies as well. Definitely go check out the episode of Ag Tech So What, which again is titled Mark Arnish on how farmers are using chat GPT. And I will definitely link to all of these episodes in the show notes. So if you don't want to pause and click and type and all that stuff, just know that they're all going to be there. Once uh, the episode is done, you can just click on them and check them out. I highly recommend it in the same vein, though, of thinking differently and embracing new technology and not accepting the status quo. Tim and Tyler Nuss at the Modern Acre podcast had a great episode on marketing and ag tech with Dan Schultz. Now, some of you might be thinking, Thinking marketing and ag tech, that's that's not my job. That's not what I do. That's not my interest. But this is sort of the, the marketing episode you didn't know you needed. Uh, the title of the episode is an ag tech marketing masterclass with Dan Schultz. This isn't marketing in the sense of like advertising or Facebook ads or SEOs or that sort of thing. It's more in the sense of knowing who you are, knowing what you bring to the table, and then finding the way to create your own category and differentiate yourself. Uh, I've known Dan since back in his Centera days and uh, he's become a prolific content creator himself on LinkedIn and through his newsletter. And what I particularly enjoyed about this interview with Tim and Tyler were Dan's comments about leveraging technology, thinking differently and creating a category all of your own, not to disrupt, but to differentiate. Where we are, we're still super young inside this space. I hear a lot of people saying things like ag tech has failed, ag tech hasn't worked. And it feels foolish to me because because people look at like Facebook and Twitter and they look at all the, you know, they're like, well, that doesn't work in agriculture. But, uh, and, and, you know, be, because you have real live, you know, plants or animals or, you know, you've got real sedentary locations where, we're, where things are not moving. But what they don't understand is the power of software driven networks to actually change the way that people engage in the real world. And we talked about that. Uh, an example of that earlier was the taxi industry. And another example was Airbnb. And, and so, it, it, you know, in the hotel industry, in the hospitality industry. And so if we can manifest the right technology with the right market opportunity, now all of a sudden it, it doesn't become should we or shouldn't we adopt ag tech? It's how fast can I get that? Can, can I get that on my farm? How fast can I get that to change? So it's like finding those opportunities. I would just encourage people to not be say like this hasn't worked it's failed us we need to move on it's more about how do we can create mass abundance in the world today and and that's by harnessing these new animating forces of the economy as opposed to looking back in in the past and saying we're just going to do what we've always done because that's what grandpa did that's what you know dad did that's what and that's what we're going to do that's that's a foolish way of moving forward in the world because the reality is you don't live in the world that your grandfather lived in. You live in a fundamentally different world than they do. And so if you're going to try to compete at that same with the same tools that they had, 
what you're competing in a 1940s, 1930s world, as opposed to moving forward into, you know, the 21st century. And that doesn't mean throwing everything away, but it does mean moving forward with wisdom it, with, and with some level of vision. We've misdiagnosed technology creation with disrupting, you know, disruption is not what any of those companies did, right? If you go, we'll go back to the Uber and Lyft example, they did not disrupt the taxi industry, to be clear. What they did is they transcended the taxi industry and now, and then they started taking away market share from them. But first you have to create something that is different and exponentially a better outcome for your customers. And, and, and I think that, that first it's, it's about creating, not competing because the best way to compete is to not to. Creating, not competing. That's definitely giving me some uh, Blue Ocean Strategy vibes. If you've read that book, it's another good one that resonates with you. And a lot of Dan's comments align with a book I've mentioned on the show before, which is Snow Leopard. I also recommend that for anyone interested in this uh topic of creating your own category. Thanks again to Tim Nuss and Tyler Nuss for allowing me to include this clip on the show. Definitely go check out the Modern Acre and specifically this episode 297 in Ag Tech Marketing Masterclass with Dan Schultz. Uh, also a great place to start is their episode 302, The Story of the Climate Corporation, which is a, uh, a sort of an acquired podcast like deep dive into the Climate Corp, which they did a great job in researching and presenting. Very fascinating episode. I'll link to both of those in the show notes. And while we're on the topic of being different and unlocking new possibilities, our next podcast episode we'll feature today comes from the guys over at Farm for Profit. Co-hosts Tanner, David, and Corey did an episode back in August with James Cope, who's the co-founder and chief intellectual property officer for Power Pollen. They have a way to collect, store, and apply pollen to a crop, uh, like corn is their primary crop, but also wheat, rice, and horticultural crops. Uh, this type of pollen naturally dies within minutes or hours normally, but uh, they have a way to store it and apply it when needed. And this opens up a bunch of new opportunities genetically that limit current genetics grown commercially. So here's Jason on Farm for Profit. As a farmer, so the crop you're planting, hybrid corn being the example, currently it's self-pollinating. So by definition, it's limiting its yield because it's not good to be self-pollinated. Cross-pollination always results in more yield. And so what the, the um, opportunity is, if you're a farmer, imagine bringing in a trait um, on the fly, post, you didn't have to plant it in the ground, the trait comes in on the pollen, and say you want to go for high oil, because oil, you've seen the market in oil, it just continues to increase and increase. So what we can do is come in and cross-pollinate a, a racehorse hybrid, a great yielder, with a high oil trait, and uh, not only increase yield, so our average yield increase for a farmer is 8%, huh. able to add 60% more oil on the fly and 14% more kernels which to a farmer, that's $200 additional dollars per acre. Wow. Wow is right. If that value per acre seems incredible, it does to me as well. Uh, but it is cool how this could open up new possibilities for hybrids and pollen mid-season that can uh, theoretically be adjusted based on whatever the growing conditions or the market conditions might be for that year. You plant just a, a general hybrid that you is good yield reliability, say it's non-traded just for the sake of argument. Um, 
now a farmer can actually wait and monitor the market conditions and think about what do I want to cross pollinate with? Do I want to go for oil? Do I want to go for starch? Is this a pure yield play? And make that decision two weeks before a pollination, just based on market signals or um, opportunities, and really dial that in based on the latest and greatest information. And weather. And weather. I mean, it could be a situation where you have excess water, it could be drought, um, and you can really dial in. There's a huge menu of traits out there that you can uh, deliver via pollen. Because I wonder if this would also be beneficial where we've been having uh, Japanese beetle issues. And obviously those uh, eat at the silks on the corn plants, probably something that could help affect the battle against the beetle. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And, you know, as you sit there and think more and more, it's um, the opportunities when you can control the pollination um, really bring reliability firmly into the equation. Tanner, this is striking me when we're talking uh, 200 per acre was the number, okay? If if that's the case, $200 per acre, I'm trying to think of all the other things we've interviewed throughout our podcast mm-hmm. from uh, cash rent negotiations, how much we can maybe save per acre or carbon credits at maybe $25 per acre or high-speed planners at maybe $40 per acre. Tile. Tile this revels that conversation. The, yeah, are you, are we are you telling me that this is the largest possible rate of return that we've interviewed in four years? Why well, it's it's exciting, Jason, because you know obviously the technology is still new, and you're you're developing the process to to make it licensable, but it does have a lot of promise to be really impactful to the industry. Hybrid selection is a very pivotal portion of the planning process to where you may pick a hybrid anticipating dry weather this season, but if you've got access to pollen with other traits in it, it could bring in maybe a more, uh, a, a more robust trait <laughs> as you cross pollinate. And you make your decision in the fall. And once you plant that seed in the past, it's been in stone because it's what you put in the ground. Um, now there's an optionality layer where you cross-pollinate and um, bring in the most timely, um, most efficient opportunity based on the environmental conditions. It is a super cool concept and approach to raising crops that has in the past only been available to seed producers, but I could definitely see applications down the road for commercial farmers as well. Power Pollen was started by two guys, Jason Cope and Todd Crone, who both had several years of experience working for companies like Monsanto and DuPont Pioneer. It reminds me a little bit of the first history episode we did this year, which is a big landmark in the Future of Agriculture podcast in 2023 with William J. Morse, who worked for years on soybeans, the tireless efforts that go on behind the scenes for years and years and years can often be the innovations that have the largest impact on agriculture and society at large. I know in the startup space, we like to glorify the outsider who comes into the industry with fresh eyes and totally looks at things new. Um, but in my experience, a lot of the most impactful things are are uh, people who have the opposite. They have all, many, many years of experience, but they just kind of keep at it. Certainly the case for William Morse seems to be the case for Jason Cope and Todd Crone, uh, but uh, not to say it can only be one or the other. 
But uh, I think that narrative gets overlooked uh, in in, uh, 2023 when it comes to tech startups specifically. Anyway, I'll get off that soapbox. Definitely go check out Farm for Profit and especially that episode from August, which is titled Crop Resilience Redefined Power Pollen Revolutionizing Corn. Thanks to Tanner, David and Corey for allowing me to share that clip with you on today's episode. All right. Only two podcasts left, and we've already covered a lot that I hope get your wheels turning for where agriculture is headed in 2024 and beyond. So just to do a quick recap here, potentially deglobalized economy with a shrinking and aging population, uh, new farmer mindsets accompanied by artificial intelligence tools who know their data and their history and have them at their fingertips to ask questions and chat back and forth on ideas. Uh, Companies leveraging emerging technologies to create new and different categories for themselves and new products like power pollen that provide more dynamic agronomic approaches. The future is going to be wild. There's still so much to cover on a podcast called Future of Agriculture. It really is an honor and privilege to do so on a weekly basis. And we haven't even mentioned yet a massive topic in 2023 that's not likely going anywhere in the future, climate smart agriculture. That is until right now. Climate smart agriculture refers to agricultural approaches that make farms more resilient to a changing climate, while at the same time help to sequester carbon and regenerate soils, landscapes, biodiversity, and other relationships in our food system. Vani Estes over at Fresh Takes on Tech podcast has been doing a whole series on climate smart agriculture this year, including episode 84, Driscoll's Global Commitments and Climate Smart Strategies with Marta Baptista. Marta is Driscoll's Global Director of Strategic Research and Technology Adoption based in Portugal. I enjoyed hearing from Marta on Driscoll's sustainability priorities in general and how they plan to get there. But my ears really perked up when Vani was asking Marta for her vision for the future of agriculture, and she chose to focus on reducing synthetic pesticides and on robotics. I'm excited with um, the possibility, which I believe is real, that agriculture will be possible with a dramatic reduction of synthetic pesticides. We're seeing it, we're feeling it, we're testing it. And then think about all the resources behind the making of all those uh, synthetic pesticides, all the inputs and all the power necessary. In some places, we're seeing it already today as um, a result of pressure from regulation or consumers or the market or other drivers for that change. So that is one that is, in my opinion, inevitable. And will happen perhaps faster than what one could think, because it's it's easy to get overwhelmed when you have a global network and think about all the pests and all the diseases that crops may have. But it's also nice to think about where is it working, and then keep that as sort of um, a direction, a vision to propagate elsewhere. So that is one area. The other area, certainly, robotics in the field. Mm-hmm. that won't replace everything we do today in the same way we are doing it today. So maybe it will be many parts, you know, m- many different solutions to achieve what we do today. Maybe we will change how we do things. And that's not a bad thing to do, right? To yeah. build processes and change what we do. We're working with a number of options and tools 
if we can today harvest the berries uh, with a machine, that's okay. Maybe we can weed with a machine. Maybe we can uh, control powdery mildew with ultraviolet light and not apply the pesticides we used to and not expose the, the applicators, the people to those situations. So I'm quite excited with the evolution of smart, you know, smart, smart machinery with robotics. Some will be autonomous or some won't. And I know that this is not like new. Like you said, we've been hearing about this for decades now, but it's kind of starting to happen. Well, for a great conversation on technology and sustainability, and of course, climate smart agriculture, definitely check out Fresh Takes on Tech, episode 84, Driscoll's Global Commitments and Climate Smart Strategies with Marta Baptista. And check out Vonnie's other episodes, which lately do focus on climate smart ag, uh, but she's also got a lot focused on other technologies in her catalog as well. Thank you to Vonnie, who was on the show back in March of 2023, episode 353, for allowing me to use this clip on today's episode. In Climate Smart Agriculture or Regenerative Agriculture or Sustainable Agriculture, whatever you choose to call it, has also continued to be a big topic on this show as well this year. We compared 13 different carbon programs in episode 346, talked about food company involvement in soil health programs in 364, heard a great case study in Regenerative Dairy with Alexander Family Farms in 371, went deep on understanding carbon sequestration with Dr. Paige Stanley in 375, and uh, challenged all sorts of uh, assumptions about regenerative agriculture just recently with John Kempf in 386. And I promise I'll spare you the, the trip down memory lane here in a minute. But one other thing that was clear this year is that you all love new business ideas. My number one episode on Spotify this year was the solo episode I did 356, seven business ideas for ag entrepreneurs. And I, I guess it didn't surprise me that you all are entrepreneurial and love business ideas. I did already know that. But I was a little bit surprised at how many of you liked hearing sort of the half-baked harebrained schemes that I had floating around in my head in that episode. Uh, but speaking of novel business ideas, our last and final story of the day today is something familiar, but yet completely different. We're talking about direct-to-consumer meat. That's at least the familiar part. But with ostrich meat. That's right. Those long-legged, awkward, feathery creatures are being grown right here in the U.S. Actually, I think in my home state of Idaho, I believe. And the meat is being marketed direct to consumer and shipped in the mail. I learned this on episode 208 of the Farm Traveler podcast, which is titled Why You Should Definitely Try Ostrich Meat. Host Trevor Williams talks to American Ostrich Farms founder and CEO Alex McCoy about his business as the largest and perhaps still the only commercial meat ostrich farm in the country. He had some really thought-provoking comments about direct-to-consumer meat and the opportunities it is providing. But first, it's probably important to share some context and answer the obvious question, why ostrich? You know, the reason why the Dutch started raising ostrich in South Africa uh, over 150 years ago was actually for their feathers and mm. for the leather, right? Mm. So that leather is that really fancy quill pattern. You see that boots and, and yeah. fancy purses and, and the feathers we, the, they use for a carnival in Brazil and in um, Beyonce dresses, you know, these big, beautiful ostrich feathers, right? And so those were the two primary products 
uh, that came off the ostrich livestock, and the meat was a total afterthought. They just uh, gave it to the to the farm help to as as part of their compensation, and so they didn't really think, oh, this is like a magical superfood red meat. And I saw that, and they were serving it to the tourists in South Africa because the tourists come, they're like, oh, I want you know something exotic, something different, something very South African. And they're like, oh, try this ostrich steak. But uh, that is that was about uh, that was ten years ago, a little more than ten years ago now, and that is changing now. So it's now it's not just the tourists who are interested in ostrich meat. It's actually become more of an international thing. People are becoming more aware of it. So just in the last ten or fifteen years, that whole narrative is starting to shift away from just being the, uh, a, a livestock for feathers and skin and, and meat being kind of an afterthought. It's now becoming the primary thought. Now, whether you're already on your phone trying to buy some ostrich meat for yourself or not, it's super interesting to hear some of the why a business like this can exist in 2023 and how these changes in the marketplace for direct to consumer frozen meat might allow for all sorts of different types of similar businesses, whether it's ostrich, beef or any other meat in the future. When I started this business 10 years ago, mm -hmm. meat through the mail was really not a thing. I mean, there was Omaha Steaks. And very few other national purveyors of even beef, you know, big, uh, you know, big proteins uh, through the mail at all. And so that, so I, I kind of thought that that would change, and and thankfully it has. And so by and large, people are, you know, it's this tidal wave of consumers getting more accustomed to ordering premium meats online. Mm -hmm. delivered directly to you. So that, so that is a, a long-term trend that we're, we're riding along with a lot of other successful companies, you know, crowd cow, butcher box. There's a lot of really, uh, really well-funded, really well-managed companies that are blazing a big path here. And we're just, we're jumping, we're jumping in right behind them to try to try to leverage a lot of what they were already doing. You know, consumers getting premium meats frozen is the future. Of, mm -hmm. of perishable products. Um, people, you know, we used to hear, and we still hear sometimes, you know, oh, we wish it was fresh, you know, uh, and what they mean by fresh is refrigerated. Yeah. But the problem is when you get something that's refrigerated, you know, it's between 36 and 42 degrees. That's a very, very narrow temperature band. That is very, very hard to keep the meat product in that temperature band over a complicated logistics supply chain. And so what ends up happening is that temperature does go high. It does go low. And, 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 and that makes for a much lower quality product. Um, there's this, you know, these, these, uh, this old wives tale about how, uh, you know, frozen meat, you know, never frozen meat is just better. And it's just not true. Uh, a lot of the top chefs now are, are realizing that that's just not the case and you getting your meat, uh, you know, which was shipped, uh, you know, across the country and then arriving in a, in a frozen state, you know, meat can't grow bacteria when it's frozen. You know, mm. and, and anything that is above freezing is going to the quality is going to degrade much more quickly than if something that is kept frozen the entire throughout the entire cold chain. And to keep something frozen, all you got to do is keep it below 32 degrees. I mean, we store our meat at negative 10. Uh, so it can oh, wow. last a very long time in our packaging mm. before you have any quality degradation. Uh, but as long, you know, for the couple of days that it takes to get to a consumer, all, all it needs to do is, is stay below 32 and then it goes into your freezer and you have a product that just could not be more fresh. And so I, I think what you're going to see is both more people getting uh, higher quality frozen meats through the mail. This is a trend that is going to continue. And you're mm -hmm. also going to see in grocery stores, uh, a lot of those fresh 
fresh uh, refrigerated cases are going to be replaced with frozen cases. Well, I agree with Alex there, and I think it's an interesting insight, and I certainly appreciate Trevor hosting him on the Farm Traveler podcast. We heard earlier this year from Alan Robinette in Michigan on episode 351 about how he's building his own direct-to-consumer business more in the tree fruit space. And on episode 356, that business ideas episode that was so popular on Spotify for some reason, uh, one opportunity I highlighted there was premium produce direct-to-consumer, but meat is, is equally a big opportunity. Just the infrastructure is becoming in place for individuals to create their, build their own brand and create their their own market, uh, directly having that relationship with their own customers. It's great to hear American Ostrich Farms is making it happen. And thanks again to Trevor at the Farm Traveler podcast for letting me share a bit of this episode with you here today. Make sure you go check out his content, the Farm Traveler podcast, especially if you love this direct to consumer stuff. Trevor does a great job of a lot of episodes in that area specifically, but he covers different topics related to agriculture and farming as well. Well, that's going to be it for today's episode. So those are the six episodes I wanted to highlight. Definitely some thought provoking content in there, I think, uh, to get your wheels turning as we enter 2024. This was a lot of fun for me to get to listen to these different ag podcasts curated by these hosts for you, the FOA audience. Thank you to each and every one of them. And I'll read them off one more time so you make sure that you can subscribe to them right away. They are the business of agriculture, ag tech. So what the modern acre farm for profit fresh takes on tech and the farm traveler if you happen to be looking for even more ag content i'm a part of several different podcasts outside of the future of agriculture that you may want to check out too so this is totally self-serving and self-promotional but i'm going to do it anyway uh those shows include soil sense growing pulse crops swat agronomy podcast and I, i'm the host on each of those as well as the almond journey podcast if you're into almonds or tree crops. Uh, but also I, I'm kind of a behind the scenes producer for some other great shows, the business of blueberries podcast, as well as food lab talk. So those are all interesting shows that you could check out. I'll link to those in the show notes as well. A lot of great content out there. Now, this is the golden age of ag podcasts. I hope you're enjoying it uh, today and I hope you're enjoying the rest of your holiday season. Thanks as well to Farmway for being our quarterly presenting sponsor this quarter and have a happy new year. Everyone wishing you all the best in 2024 and beyond. If you're listening to this in the future, you too. Thanks so much for listening. I don't take it lightly. I'll be back next week with another story of ag innovation. <laughs>